Hello and welcome to Post-Status Draft, the official podcast for Post-Status, a website with news and information for WordPress professionals. Draft is brought to you by our club members and our site partners. You can check them out on our website and join the Post-Status Club at poststatus.com slash club. You'll be joining over 400 wonderful club members and you'll never miss important WordPress news again. Today I'd like to feature one of our partners, Pippin's Plugins. If you want to sell downloads, set up content restriction, or start an affiliate program, Pippin's Plugins have you covered. If you need all three, even better. Check out Pippin's Plugins at pippinsplugins.com. Thank you to Pippin for being a post-status partner. Now here's our show. Hey everybody, I'm Brian and I'm the editor of Post-Status. And I'm Joe, I'm the co-founder of CTO, uh, blah, blah, <laughs> co-founder and CTO of Human Made. And welcome to the uh, Post-Status Draft Podcast, episode four. Episode four. We made it. We did. <laughs> I think the the reboot with you as the co-host has been far more consistent than the sporadic audio that I ever posted before. Hey, there we go. It's the uh, peer pressure between us that's doing it. <laughs> You're my podcast accountability partner. Right, exactly. Uh, so today we're going to talk about strategies for working locally with WordPress. Um, we're going to get into underscore JS templating, and we're going to talk about transparency in WordPress businesses. Cool. So let's jump right into it. Uh, working locally. Yeah. This, so I guess, uh, yeah, I, I guess broadly what we're speaking about here is like um, as, as in development environments locally uh, rather than, I don't know, that could be interpreted as a lot of other things, I guess, working locally. Um, yeah, I mean, there might be people that uh, are new to WordPress development and they only have experience changing files via FTP, which mm. then you definitely yeah. need to listen to this segment. Um, but additionally, we're going to hope, hope you know the basics of working locally and that you're, you're, you're doing that. Um, and we're going to talk more about strategies and different ways to do it because there are uh, many different ways to tackle uh, development styles and local development environments. Um, both of us are on Macs. That kind of has a, a decent amount to do with this. Uh, some of these, some of these methods are a little harder on a Windows environment. However, you can still work locally, obviously, on a Windows environment just fine. Yeah, I've always. I'm not, you know, super into the Mac Windows debate or anything like that. But um, I, yeah, I, I have think, no desire for this to be that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I think that um, generally speaking, the the easier to set up tools are usually on Mac Linux side of things, um, which is unfortunate. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's just kind of the majority of web developers these days are, are using. Uh, you know, Unixy kind of system rather than Windows. Always, there is a lot of people on Windows still, but I, it seems just kind of a smoother process generally. Uh, things seem to be, you know, vagrant and things like that work under Windows, but you know, there's a lot more edge cases, and it just seems broadly that it's a less kind of tested thing, you know. Mm -hmm. And you know, I guess that's it's easier because the the web itself, when it's running on Linux and your Mac is running. You can you can create a, a local server on Linux pretty easily. So right, well, right, yeah. I think you know the it, it must be in the ninety percent or something. You know, websites that are that are running on Linux based servers uh, rather you, than Windows. You don't want to run WordPress on IIS. You know, it's not as bad as what some people think. But no, I I still <laughs> don't want to do it. 
yeah. So I do. Yeah. Let, let's back up a little bit. I guess. <laughs> sure. So I, I guess we can kind of, you know, to orientate on on this kind of topic. Then there is, you know, older way I would probably say of doing things where people were often running their code on a. Uh, you know, on the live server or on the on on some remote server like a, a, a dev site, and then you know you edit your files over FTP or something like that's mm-hmm. the kind of that is what I would generally consider to be the not so good way of doing things. Um, right. So there's, but but with local development comes a bunch of other kind of stuff. Generally, I think you know there's uh, version control, and are you using version control locally? Uh, there's obviously you know you hosting the code locally and running it and having all the server there and having all the database and everything that you need so um and then of course that turns into deployment procedures for getting your code from being local to sending it up to a development environment right right and there are like there there are i i wouldn't say always one is better than the other because there are situations where you do want to be editing code you know that that is pushed up to a remote system because you can't run it locally like i think people that work on wordpress.com is a good example they don't have a copy of the wordpress.com environment on their machine they actually edit code uh you know on on a machine that is plugged into that live database um so it's it's not always they just there's a better way to do it but i would say like if you're developing sites and you're not using version control and developing locally, then uh, you know you you should probably just do that. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a standard best practice at this point. But WordPress compared to people working with a lot of other programming fields was probably a little late to the game in really establishing good documentation and and rules and yeah yeah so the, the the kind of process i guess before a lot of these systems came out like we're gonna we're gonna talk about then it was just kind of like set up your own computer as a server and there were things like mamp and wamp for windows that that made that a bit easier but you still weren't running things quite as um replicable as as they would be on the production environment so that's where i guess virtualization and vagrant made that a lot easier Mm-hmm. Uh, so for, for anybody that doesn't know, <laughs> I think the goal, a, a lot of people probably do know Vagrant at this point. But Yeah, and that just allows you to run specific versions of PHP, MySQL, things that mirror your actual website's environment. Yeah, it has that, and you can, you're, obviously you're also able to mirror the operating system level as well, which right. uh, changes things a little bit. Having said that, I mean, again, I think, you know, I uh, talked to Andrew Nason, and he does half of his stuff under MAMP. So, I mean, you know, he's, he's yeah. not really, he's just kind of like, you know, or, or would have been developing WordPress rather than actual client projects. So it, it's a different use case again, but it, it it's, you know, um, I think when you've kind of done full circle and you've tried all these systems and everything, then coming back to something like MAMP is like, if it works for you and the work that you're doing, then that's fine. Um, that there's no kind of right or wrong there, but definitely having experience with other things and knowing how they can improve things under certain situations is a good string to the bow. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, there are different, different styles. And one of the things that affects what somebody may use is just kind of your familiarity with the command line versus, uh, wanting to utilize some sort of GUI. Right, yeah. That is, so I, I don't know, um, that's where MAMP was always really popular, I think, is with the kind of coder designer 
crowd that uh, wanted to, let's say you're doing WordPress, but you're not a really PHP developer and not used to this whole like command line thing, then that really made that easier for um, you know, providing a visual way. I, I remember before I was like into using command line, I, I would always get these visual tools that like, I, I remember like one that was allowed you to like install brew packages, but it was visual. But all you literally do is like search and then click install and it would do exactly the same thing. And like, if, if just because I wasn't comfortable with the command line, it was actually super simple on the command line. But um, I, I think when you have this mental block on the command line, like I, I would Google tutorials. And as soon as I saw it was asking me to input commands, I was like, click back. I want to find one that tells me where to, you know, do things visually. Um, and I would recommend that anybody get over that um, uh, mental block on, on using the command line because it can really open up a lot more tools for you. Um, mm -hmm. like Vagrant is a, uh, primarily a command line tool. Um, but it, it, it's not difficult. It's, you know, you can copy paste the commands and there are only a few commands that, that you need to know. Um, the onboarding process for figuring out the command line can sometimes be quite difficult though. Uh, yeah. in my opinion, I mean, I, I've, over the past couple of years, gotten more and more into doing things through the command line, but it's still a slow learning curve. Like there's not, it's kind of like that, how to draw an owl tutorial. Right. <laughs> right. Have you, have you seen uh, that where yeah. it's like draw two circles and then the next step is draw the rest of the <laughs> effing owl. <laughs> it, it kind of is, I, I guess. Yeah. Like I'm definitely from the self taught, you know, I, I was never taught how to use a, terminal or anything like that so i definitely stumbled through a lot of that it's kind of weird looking back now though to me it's so kind of simple and intuitive that once you kind of understand the building blocks of how kind of the uh unix api works you know with with inputting commands and passing arguments and using pipes and and chaining commands and things like that um, I, I can definitely understand that I just didn't know that straight away, but it's definitely not that difficult. I think that people are generally more worried about it than they need to be, especially when people learn things like Photoshop, which is like the most difficult to use <laughs> UI in the world, like with the millions of buttons and millions of different things. There's actually only a few components that you really need to learn for command line, and that opens up a huge amount of stuff that you can do. Uh, so I, I think that yeah, for whatever reason, people just kind of get worried. That, so you're you know. saying that if someone understands Photoshop, they can dominate the command line? Yeah, that's <laughs> that's my limit. He's on record. <laughs> uh, yeah. So some of the popular solutions out there, I'll go kind of in order of maybe they're from an introductory level, what people use up. Yeah. Um, MAMP and then MAMP Pro which allows you to set like custom domains and have multiple is that, is, is that a paid? That sounds like a paid It's their product. paid upgrade. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, that's where I started. That's a very common method to, to get going. Another yeah. one that a lot of people that don't want to deal with some of the command line stuff as much is desktop server. Uh, it's another paid product, but pretty catered to WordPress. Mm -hmm. um, nice. One that has been... Very popular among the development community. I'd say it's probably kind of quasi-standard. Um, is varying vagrant vagrants or VVV. Mm -hmm. It's a crazy um, name. It is. It's a I great name, though. I don't. I do. I need to explain to me. I don't understand what what is it saying. Varying vagrant vagrants. 
Well, I mean, you can you can <laughs> set up multiple instances of Vagrant. Okay, and you can set them up in different ways. And you can set them up in different ways. I see. Um, so you can have a lot going on on one Vagrant install. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is how I'm still doing stuff. It is a little slow, and at times it's been cumbersome for me. But yeah, and that's I think that's why people have moved to some other things. Some people have moved to some other things, right. but it's also very powerful. And it's very heavily catered towards WordPress development and including core WordPress development. Yeah, I kind of think because VVV, maybe a little unfairly so, because I know there is a lot of good work that goes into this project, but it's kind of like the first one. And because of that, it became quite popular. But I don't usually consider it to be technically, you know, great. Like at least when it was first released, it was just kind of like a bunch of shell scripts that would, you know, try set up. The, the, the vagrant machine but some of the later ones i think you know like chassis for example that use puppet for provisioning and had a lot more of a controlled robust um infrastructure underneath but because of just that initial popularity then uh, vvv is you know pretty ubiquitous mm-hmm. and so chassis is another one that you just mentioned and ryan McHugh manages that project and then uh you guys at human made use salty wordpress yeah and, so and it's gained some adoption yeah, it, it's not um, hugely popular. It was probably around the time of VVV, but the main thing that we wanted to do different at that point was to um, have the uh, you use a proper provisioning system to install of the things like PHP and everything. So we could basically that means that you know you, you can be a little more uh, deterministic with how the server is set up and everything. Um, if if I were to come into the space now and we didn't have solid WordPress, then I'd adopt one of the other ones for sure um but it, it's kind of uh yeah it's it's used by everybody at human made and uh else you know somewhat elsewhere but not not hugely um one, one of the probably differences i would uh usually i'm looking at when somebody has a box that you know is a, is a vagrant machine or otherwise is whether you run multiple vagrants per, uh, or if, if you run one virtual machine per site or not um so salty wordpress for example, you put all of your sites in the sync or, or you have one instance of solely WordPress running all of your sites. Uh, mm. So you only need one virtual machine running to have you know access to, you know, I probably have 40 sites or something like that locally. Uh, Chassis, on the other hand, takes the approach of you have one virtual machine per project or, or per site. Um, so that means that, uh, you know, you vagrant up in one of your projects and you do some work there and then you switch to another one so i guess you vagrant down and then you vagrant up in the other one so it probably you know depends on your workflows and things like that like chassis i see is very good for a single very large project but i do a huge amount of context switching in the day to switch between projects and, and things like that so i definitely appreciate solely wordpress for that in in terms of um i don't have to you know be slowing down my computer by having 12 VMs running at once or I don't have to have the downtime of waiting for them to, to boot and, and shut down. Um, yeah, so and I'm the same. And uh, VVV, I think that's the most common setup is people having one uh, virtual machine running at a time right. with multiple sites on it. Right, right. But I think it's kind of a mesh of these two. Like you can you can create a, another virtual machine and, uh, you know, have other stuff in there. But... Right. I would I'd maintain all my own and client sites or whatever all in all in one go. 
Yeah, yeah. I would say that most of these tools that uh, you know, usually your code and everything is not. It's usually in a shared folder that is shared into the virtual machine. So you're you don't um, literally have all of your projects uh, like code checked out inside the virtual machine. So you can kind of switch between these systems relatively easy. You're not too bought in. Um, the the database is, is is often not the case because it's a bit more tricky to share the files. So. Often your database is in the Vagrant machine, it's locked in there, as it were. So you'd have to do an export and everything to switch. Um, so, and then there's also, uh, and this is probably a newer thing, or at least from an adoption standpoint, of people getting excited about it, is Docker. Um, yeah, and, that's the buzzword. Yes, <laughs> the day. people are, they're using Docker to... Uh, to set things up locally, and, and you can mirror it directly to your install and it's got this uh, separation of, of concerns of sorts so that you can docker MySQL and PHP separately and mm -hmm. you know, all sorts of stuff so uh, teach me about docker <laughs> yeah so I don't I don't want to go too crazy over technical because a lot of people glaze over when you start talking about LXC containers and things like that um, but the the basic premise is that um, you know Things were usually done on um, dedicated machines back in the day. You know, you had a hardware box and you installed the operating system and you did stuff there. So, you know, that that tied the operating system to the hardware. Now, um, virtual machines came along and kind of solved that to some degree in that now you have lots of copies of an operating system running on one physical machine and you can move those uh, virtual machines with you know a little bit of difficulty, but you can between different uh, di different physical machines. So Docker, you or, or what what Docker is really built on, which is uh, containerization, is really kind of the next level of that, which is very uh, lightweight, easy to move around. Uh, I don't want to say virtual machines; it's not a virtual machine. It's like a very thin layer on top of the operating system that allows you to. Um, containerize, you know, processes, basically. Uh, so think of it, you know, an easy way to think of it is like a lightweight, very fast virtual machine. Uh, so they take like a couple of seconds to boot up and you can copy them between servers super easily. You can even copy them between servers whilst having it running and, and rooting traffic and everything. So they're very um, versatile like that. The idea is you uh, have... You know, you, you could have lots of different containers. So you would have one for your PHP web server and one for your MySQL server, a little like you can do with, with virtual machines. But often the t tendency for a virtual machine is everybody just kind of chucks everything inside one, right? And then that's mm -hmm. their, their VM. With Docker, then, it encourages a bit more of a services approach where you have one Docker image for your web server and one for your memcached and all that kind of stuff. And then you can easily spin up, you know, 20 more web server ones in a matter of seconds to ramp up and down with traffic quickly and things like that. Uh, so the the general idea is, or, or the general technology and everything is, is in in many ways superior to virtual machines. Um, but and there are a few kind of, I think a few pretty big caveats. And I'm not somebody that's kind of on the containerization Docker bandwagon. Um, and I, I would say probably the biggest one really is, uh, so Docker is built on, uh, containers and containers, it's a Linux container. So if you're under Windows or Mac, then you can't actually, you can't run Docker, right? or you, you can't run a container on top of Mac. 
Um, the the you know it, it's just kind of apples and oranges. Uh, so actually, when you run Docker on your Mac, what you're doing is you're running a virtual machine for Linux, and then you're running uh, Docker containers within that Linux virtual machine. Uh, so so there is a another level of abstraction there, which is one thing that does turn me off a little bit. So you have Vagrant, and it's running you know Ubuntu, uh, you know you SSH into your Vagrant machine, and now you get access to control the Docker images. Uh, so you can, you know, uh, attach to one of your Docker images and run commands there. So now you're like two or three levels deep at, at this point. So I, that kind of um, extra, extra complexity, you know, uh, an, a, annoys me a little bit. It, it's the same with, so Amazon now have a container service, uh, but it's built on top of their, um, their virtual machine service, EC2. So there's kind of this double level of their running, obviously, uh, virtual machines on dedicated hardware with containers in those virtual machines. So ag again, there's kind of this um, bigger disconnect, I guess, and, and more moving parts involved uh, that, that can kind of cause problems. And that's usually what I'm trying to get away from. That's why I kind of wish it was super easy for everybody just to run a server directly on their host operating system and not need Vagrant. Like, it's a pain in the ass, really, having a virtual machine where you've got to boot it up and everything. I would much rather everything were just kind of on the metal, but the, the fact is that we want to con standardize things, and the best way to do that is with a virtual machine. And mm -hmm. I kind of seeing in adding containers to that mix is kind of getting a little further away from that goal, not closer to it. If you could run Docker uh, you know, natively, as it were, and you didn't need this extra level of this other virtual machine and Vagrant and needing to pass everything through if in terms of you know, network traffic and routing and all that kind of stuff, then I could maybe kind of uh, get on board a little more. Yeah, and Docker has its own thing that it does, for, it uses for that. Boot to Docker used to be the one, and now they've more recently uh, introduced the Docker machine. So it's a it's a virtual machine that's dedicated just to be this pass-through for Docker so that... Right, right. So that, yeah, that that would be... Um, if you want to get, like, super familiar with Docker, then that's probably the, the better way to do it. Um, in terms of, like, if you want to actually ship all of your stuff. So and another thing that's kind of different with containers, which uh, a lot of people... I think kind of miss, unless I'm missing something, but we'll, we'll see, is that the, the idea is that um, when you do a deployment, the idea is to actually ship your whole Docker image, uh, including code and everything. Um, so it's not kind of replaced, like you would usually, when you push code to production, you usually wouldn't be pushing up like your whole like uh, virtual machine, right? Um, mm -hmm. But with Docker containers, then the idea is more that you are shipping your code base with the environment. So it's a binary of everything that is going to be running in production. You're not necessarily, you obviously can do it this way, but, but you don't have to think of it like you're pushing your code up and then it's going to go into the production Docker images. Like it can be literally, you push up your Docker image, including all the code in it and all of the stuff configured, PHP, etc., And that is then uh, rolled out onto your servers. Yeah, but it's, it's fast, so it can... Right, right, ex exactly. And it works with this kind of... Um, you, Docker kind of has this idea that you have a stack of um, snapshots. So you would have, like, let's say at the bottom, you have a snapshot of Ubuntu with not much configured. And then you could overlay another Docker image on that that installs all of your web server and everything like that. And then over that, you could overlay another image which has your code base and things. So then the first two you can use on all projects, you know, 
share them across those. And then that third level is just the difference in code base. So that means that shipping a new Docker image is then very small because it's only the differences in that code that, that you're having to ship around. Um, is, is, is this making sense at all, Brian? What's the... <laughs> yeah, no, it, it makes sense. It's a little bit... It's a little bit more difficult to wrap your head around, I feel like. And it's uh, it's not the... I think we can go ahead and say it's not the route we would probably say do this first if you're f just getting into... Right, right. Going beyond MAMP. Yeah, uh, yeah. Probably I, I would don't say... start with Docker. It's going to be more complicated. Yeah, I mean, having said that, like, you, you don't have to run it how I'm saying. You can just kind of run it in the virtual machine way. Like, if you take... Um, I'm probably going to discuss some unreleased stuff here or something, but um, uh, I think uh, VIP are experimenting using um, containers, but they're not. They're they're using it more just as a replacement for virtual machines, so they can you know uh, have the benefits there rather than you know it's not like on WordPress on VIP are going to ship up your uh, binary Docker file and, and they're going to run that or something. So it's not like generic, um, hosting for, for Docker images, but yeah. the and VIP is actually a really good example of, uh, kind of why these vagrant installs can be really nice because you can configure it to mirror something that's pretty specific. So VIP wordpress.com runs a lot different setup than your average WordPress install. Mm -hmm. So they, they set, they, offer VIP quick start for people to utilize. And right. It's a vagrant setup that is kind of like their, uh, their live. Yeah. Yeah. I'd servers. say, yeah, kind of definitely. Obviously they, they, they can't replicate everything. I'd probably say that it's about 80% of the way to, to their you know, mm -hmm. environment. Um, but it definitely does help both in, there is that reproducibility aspect to it, but I think quick start is really about people don't really know where to start they come to VIP and it's just download this and it's all okay. You know, I, I think I, I would say the more development and coding I do, the less the reproducibility aspect actually kind of comes up. Like I, I feel like I know enough intricacies now around, I need to make sure this is going to work if somebody's using a memcache drop in and I need to make sure it's going to work if you're running PHP 5.2 and that kind of stuff. Uh, so I, I used to be kind of a big proponent of we need local environment to be a total mirror of production. But I would kind of say the, the, the more experience that I get, the, the less that I kind of need that there. Um, and the kind of, um, I, th I think if you're generally doing pretty good development, then that becomes less of, of, of an issue. Um, like our, our salty WordPress used to be an exact mirror of all of our production environments that we have on AWS. Um, and, and that was, you know, towed the party line there and, and that was an advantage, but, but these two things are actually diverging more over time where, you know, Saudi WordPress now has PHP unit and all these kind of things. And then I've got now pretty different configurations in production because it's more focused on the performance side of things and locking down access and things like that. So I, I would say, um, I, I, I don't know how much I kind of buy the, the, uh, reproducibility benefits anymore. Speaking of uh, salty WordPress, can you tell me the difference between salt, puppet, and chef, and why are these yeah. web development terms? <laughs> right, right. So um, I, I have a, a certain way of thinking it in my head, is that when you do something 
on the command line or you do anything on your computer basically or a server or anything you can just there, there, there's no way to tell what you did right so i could log onto a server and i could like just change some file to fix some weird edge case bug or i could just install some program or something like that um and doing that there's there's kind of no way to reproduce that next time so that's why uh provisioning systems really exist uh is is so you can define in code how like what should the state of a server be right so it should have php installed and the configuration file should look like this and it should have the nginx service running all of this kind of stuff so really what it what what it is is shifting your infrastructure from binary kind of nobody knows what's going on in your server to shifting it into a code base instead where you can version control your state of your servers then because it's just you know they're provisioning files in git and people can pull requests and discuss no it should be configured in this way and we should install this and, and do this kind of thing before provisioning you kind of don't really get that you've just got a bunch of servers hanging around or even your local development server and one day, you know, you, you, you ran some code and you had to install a PHP module, but you forgot all about it. And now you reset up your machine and now you've got the same problem again because that was just kind of a one-off you did sometime. So provisioning allows you to get away from that and have everything stateless, which, you know, you, you define the state of everything that you want to exist on that server. So that is what Sulk Puppet... Can I can I Except dumb this down? Out. Yeah, sure. I don't think I'm way off base. Yeah. No, you're fine. I just uh, <laughs> let me see if my analogy will work. If can we imagine Vagrant as like an event space that's customizable, and then the provisioning system is what helps define it as being set up for a wedding or a party or a concert. Right. Right. Yeah. So I mean, you you there, there's no limit to what you can do with with provisioning. It's more if you think of it. Whenever I want to do something on a server, there's two ways I can do it. I can SSH into the server and I can run whatever commands I want or edit whatever files I want. Or I can go and adjust my provisioning files and then I can update that server to say, be the state of what I say is in these provisioning files. Hmm. So you can actually adjust it from the significantly from the provisioning file itself. Yeah, yeah. You, you can literally do anything that you could do to a server or, you know, that, that's the idea of a provisioning system. Um, right. So you can, if you want, you know, you can run arbitrary commands. You can say when the machine is first provisioning, run rm slash whatever. Like you, you generally need to be, should be more declarative, but that is the level of freedom that you get is everything that you could have done manually. Instead, you define it in your provisioning file and then you never have to do it again manually. That's kind of the idea. So we might have scared people off that haven't uh, really gotten into working locally or understanding how those local setups work. Because, I mean, even something like MAMP kind of does, not really, but kind of does this stuff. It sets up an environment that you can then edit your code on and, and, and do what you need to do. Right. The, the, so the, usually the, the defining line is because you know, these are both kind of automated things, right? You can use provisioning to automate provisioning your server, or you could write a script to automatically provision your server. So, Yeah, and that's kind of where I'm getting with that because, I mean, the whole point of this is this is setting you up to do work. So right. assuming you have one of these up, now what's the work itself look like? Yeah, so the um, a quick note on that, I would say that the advantage of provisioning over setting initial setup 
be with a, with a script is it's quite difficult to make extra modifications uh, if, if you've gone down the automated script rather than provisioning approach. But I, mm. may, maybe that doesn't even... So making uh, adjustments would be harder. Right, right, exactly. Um, but having, you know, having said that, I think if you're just coming into this, none of this really matters. Some of these, you know, chassis and Saudi WordPress, maybe even va varying vagrant vagrants now also using provisioning. You don't really need to worry about that because the company is going to go and do it and, and everything. But it is quite kind of nice to know that you can, in most of these cases, you know, you can go make a couple of tweaks to say, oh, I want PHP 5.4. I've just changed the provisioning file and reprovisioned my vagrant environment. And then it's going to uh, update itself to to match what I've just kind of updated in those provisioning files. Um, so it does often allow you with an, an easier way to make modifications on top of your virtual machine that, that you're developing with, um, which which can be useful. And once you do get set up uh, both on Mant Pro, uh, Salty WordPress or VVV, I'll use these as my examples, you can then... Ryan McHugh is going to be very upset you chose... Or, or, or Chassis. Or desktop server. A, we, we have an ongoing feud between Saudi WordPress to, and Chassis internally. So. We have to play politics here. <laughs> uh, in any of these things, I can then... Let's say I get, it, I get it set up, and then they each have a command to say, hey, new site, and then call this site poststatus.dev. Mm -hmm. And... Then I have postas.dev. It's a WordPress install that looks, uh, if I brought down the database from my live site, then I, it looks just like my live site. And I can use tools. I can use WPCLI. What other things do I have at my, dis what, what stuff do I have at my disposal now that I'm working locally in one of these Yeah, tools? so typically, like br broadly speaking, you know, I'll kind of talk about these in the aggregate. They're, they're usually providing you with a bunch of additional tools as well. So yes, it can run your code and, yeah, it, it can enable you to get a, a project started. Like you mentioned, WPCLI, I think, is probably going to be installed on all of these by default. If you don't know what WPCLI is, uh, that is a command line tool that allows you to just control control your WordPress via the command line rather than via the admin. It's just kind of like, think of it as WordPress admin is the you know visual UI, and the command line version of that is WPCLI. Um, and for people that haven't used it yet, it can do a lot of things, but the things that it's most useful for, in my opinion, is it's really good with search and replace. Yeah. It's also a better importer than the WordPress importer if you're dealing with that type of stuff. Yeah, so it's kind of focused at those kind of uh, big management tasks. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, search replace is a really good example. Like search replacing, quite often what people do is they'll do like a, a SQL export and then they'll find replace on that file. But the problem is anything that has serialized data, that's going to totally break. Um, whereas WPCLI will handle, you know, unserializing that data, then doing replace, then serializing it back up, and all those kind of edge cases. So I definitely couldn't recommend uh, WPCLI enough. Yeah. And then uh, another thing that a lot of these come with is the ability to run tests. So if you're running on, if you're working on WordPress uh, core, or if you've got tests in your own uh, development setup for your projects, you can create unit tests and you can run them using tools through these uh, through these services. How does that work? Yeah, so typically um, people are usually talking PHP unit when they when they do this. That's what most of the WordPress tests are written in. So uh, you know your your virtual machine, usually what you do is you would 
SSH into your virtual machine, you run Vagrant SSH, and now you're inside the computer in your computer, and you're able to use these tools like WPCLI and, and PHP Unit. So um, for, for anybody that um, doesn't write tests, then this is kind of good because you have fully configured and functional PHP Unit, and you just need to kind of there's some other bootstrapping, but again, WPCLI can generate all of that like uh, unit testing boilerplate code so you can kind of get get writing. Um, also, I think, you know, a lot of them will have things like uh, Grunt and NPM installed already. So you can, uh, you, you don't need to do all that on, on the host machine if you don't want to. So you can do your fancy SAS building and, and things like that. I think it's pretty common to do inside mm -hmm. the Vagrant machine. And visually, to describe this, I'm looking at my VVV install right now. A regular WordPress install, you're going to see WP content, WP includes, WP admin, and the handful of files that it comes with. That's kind of your root uh, folder unless you've adjusted it. Um, but if you're looking at the install where you've got your tests, in this case it's WordPress develop, then there's... In the root, there's a folder called source that has what I just described, a typical install, but it's in that folder. And then there's another folder right alongside the source that just says tests, and that's where uh, PHP unit or other testing tools uh, have its own suite of these tests. And you go into a test folder, and then there's files with tests for all sorts of different things, whether comments or right, uh, yeah. caching or categories or multi-site. Yeah, so you're, you're, you're talking about the um, WordPress core unit tests. and the, the, Yeah, that's the how WordPress the WordPress core repo. unit tests are set up. Yeah. And then, so you can, when you see people, they write a patch for WordPress and then someone says, this needs tests, you need to utilize a system like this to then write and edit the files where the tests exist. And this is something that is part of WordPress core that's not very visible to people that aren't paying close attention. Yeah, I'd say that's the great thing about, I think, these Vagrant um, machines is, like, WordPress core development is a really good example of that. You can just uh, install, I guess, VVV is what you're talking about now, um, mm -hmm. and, and you can easily contribute that way because you have all the code base there. You have the unit tests. Excuse me. You can run all the unit tests. Um, it, it's much easier than... Somebody coming along and they've got their own copy of WordPress running in MAMP and they make a modification, but then they don't know how to get the WordPress develop directory and run all the tests and all that kind of stuff. This gets you a long way in, in terms of doing that kind of stuff for sure. It really helped me see it better. Mm -hmm. I know that it sound, probably sounds silly to a lot of people, but uh, when you're just getting introduced to this stuff, sometimes it's complicated to really understand what's going on and what people are talking about. Right, right. So what haven't we touched on from a local development standpoint? Oh, everything. <laughs> um, yeah, What's next? De deployment, and uh, I guess we have version control. And Oh, yeah, so another thing you usually get is uh, Vagrant machines would be, they'd probably have Git installed. So if you don't have Git running elsewhere, then you can use that all from, the, from Vagrant again. And you can uh, define the remote repository right alongside it. And, uh, you can define yeah, guess, what your local uh, repository is limited to, all that stuff, right? Right. Again, depends on which one of these systems you're using, but that, that is generally the kind of road they're going down. I would say, like, Salty WordPress is very bare bones. It doesn't really do any of that helping queue stuff. Like, there's no commands to initiate a project or anything. It's it's a bit more, um, bit, bit more close to the metal. You kind of need to know what you're doing rather than... Uh, 
I, I think VVV has probably got a lower barrier to entry, so that would be a good starting point. Yeah, Brad Parbs has a uh, site creation wizard called Variable VVV. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Inception. It, it's VV by short. So it's four Vs, but it's VV. Uh, and essentially makes it so that you can configure a site uh, to, and you can say what the name is, you can say what the repository is, you can uh, create, essentially there's a, a blueprint that you can create that looks like a uh, like a grunt file, basically. Okay, and, and it sets um, everything up. Yeah, you can kind of define some stuff that you want. You can even say that you want CMB2 to be packaged. In oh, there, wow. You know, like other plugins. It, it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of those websites that allow you to like configure your custom post type and then it'll like give you the code for it. It's, uh... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a site generator. And, right. Uh, it's pretty cool. I've, I've used it before to just kind of script some of the stuff I don't, you know, then would otherwise have to go in and do manually. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I would say VVV is a pretty good setup for people that are really just kind of getting going with setting up WordPress and Vagrant and want multiple installs and all that. I mean, I've used it. I've had some terror times with it. I had two weeks one time where it was just borked and I could not, <laughs> I could, I could not even get rid of it and get it back. Yeah. So that, I mean, that, that's the, that's the problem with abstraction is if yeah. you don't understand how it works, when things go wrong, then you're kind of stuck. And I, I definitely like that. I don't know. I, I kind of know this stuff to the degree now where I can fix anything anyway. Um, but definitely going through the process of make like building salty WordPress, then I, uh, it, it's, it's nice for me personally to be able to fix anything that goes wrong with my computer. Now that, that that's the general problem of abstraction. I think is if you want to just use something and not know how it works, then you often are going to run into some problem and, and then you're going to be stuck. Yeah. All right. There's a lot more that we could say about working locally, but we're yeah. d dumping loads of links into the show notes and people can go click on them and pull their hair out to their heart's content. <laughs> uh, let's spend a few minutes because we sp uh, two weeks ago we talked about under, uh, React and, and using yeah. it with WordPress. Underscore JS is a uh, primarily templating system, but WordPress core uses it a lot with the customizer and you can use it in a variety of ways it's just an included script in wordpress yeah i'd probably um i'd probably say it's not primarily a templating system it has a templating function in it yeah um, I, it's I, a little bit yeah. yeah no it's, it's more of a utilities library i guess of which one is a templating function that's <laughs> yeah that's how i yeah. put it um so how is wordpress using it wordpress core yeah so uh, underscore is very commonly coupled with using Backbone JS. So WordPress uses Backbone for all of the um, JavaScript models and server communication, or well, all of the modern stuff. There, there's still a lot of old stuff that isn't using it. Uh, so when you are using the WordPress media library, uh, all of that, you know, pulling all of those images in that pop-up from the back end and building all of that, uh, all the data there is, is all backbone. Models, views, um, uh, controllers, etc. So the underscore templating bit is all of the actually rendering in JavaScript at UI. 
so really what it's doing is it's taking the data from the backend responses that, that goes into backbone models, takes that data and it takes a template, an underscore template, and it puts the two together and it renders a, you know, a completed modal like the media modal or you click into an image and it uh, gives you your editing capabilities and things like that. Uh, so it, it's really tying the backbone models into HTML and, and what's, making that what work. What are the advantages of doing it this way versus using uh, PHP to talk to the server? Yeah, so so it's the usual, uh, you know, it's uh, you, you don't have to reload any pages or anything like that. That's really mm -hmm. the, that, that's typically why you are rendering things in JavaScript is you want to use AJAX requests to get your data and then you want to show it to the user uh, in a sane way. So you use a JavaScript templating engine to build those templates. Um, so it's very snappy. Yeah, yeah. That's why, you know, if, if, if imagine if every time you clicked around the media modal, it had to reload the page, like you click on the thumbnail and you want to like the, the sidebar on the right hand side wants to update. So like you would reload the page and then that would update and then you would like change the drop down. Like it, it would be a total nightmare. So it, I can imagine it because I used WordPress well, yeah, before true. version 3.4 or 5 or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, and it's painful, especially, you know, WordPress isn't the fastest kind of load time for the admin, you know, you're probably looking at a second or so on, on most servers, so it's not really fun to, to have to wait all that time. Uh, you know, when the media stuff went in, it was probably, it was one of those things, Daryl Coopersmith did a lot of the development on it, Yeah, and it's like he just dove down into the deep end of the pool and he came up later and it was there. And yeah. uh, I think it took a while for people to kind of catch up. And Yeah, I think... So people are still starting really at, at the mass level. I mean, obviously some, some core, key core people really get it, but at right. a bigger level, people are still trying to really wrap their head around some of these newer things. Yeah, yeah, I think... You know, my kind of personal opinion of the whole thing is that, yes, it kind of came out with something that works pretty well, but I definitely didn't appreciate the, um, you know, just like the, like, like you said, um, I think Coop basically had, had worked on that and then uh, produced this thing, but then it kind of um, lost energy or whatever for, for, for the project. And now there's, you know, it's still not even now like great documentation about how you go about building things on top of this or like this and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's probably a good example for, you know, we should look out in the future that when new technology is introduced and things like that, then there needs to be a good amount of documentation education around those, those new things. Um, I remember talking to Scott Taylor and... I think he said something along the lines of he just just decided like okay I gotta go figure this out and he you know spent a week or two yeah. just digging through you know a thousand new lines of code that went into WordPress and and figuring it out and you know since that time him and some other people have actually refactored some stuff to to make it a little more. Uh, useful for co the core WordPress development processes. And, and, you know, there's, it's being adjusted now, but it was quite a while there where it was just like, Hey, here's a bunch of new code and it works, but you know, extending it, documenting. Right. Right. It, yeah. All I've, that stuff I've is done, kind of no man's land. I've, I've done exactly the same thing of, I, you know, probably took me a couple of weeks 
of picking apart all of that code to try and build. Uh, we I, I was working on a project where we were basically um, before they brought the image editor into the um, backbone views and everything. Before that, then for a client, then we. Um, basically kind of build that whole thing, but you could do a heck of a lot more. You know, you could put text over images and you could style all the text and all of this was done in the media modal pop-up. So I had to like do a full kind of, I need to work out exactly what is going on here to leverage this rather than doing some really hacky, just like manage to get some text in there somewhere kind of thing. Um, and it, it was definitely really difficult. And I would say the majority, like every time I have to go back and do another project that modifies uh, media modal stuff, it still takes me like a couple of days to get back in and work out what is going on. I, I still uh, struggle with that. And I don't think that I'm really the only one. I think that that, that is um, pretty common. Yeah, I mean, I think even uh, creating your own instance of the media modal from a custom place in the admin is still not, right, still not super that easy. well documented yeah, or super yeah. easy. Like you could have, I, I know when I did it, I ended up having somebody review it and they were like, you don't need this or this or this. And I was like, well, that's yeah, what I yeah, saw. And yeah, the only yeah, example exactly. I could find of this. Yes, so I thought it was necessary. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I'm glad because now uh, Justin Tadlock seems to have it on his itinerary to do what he does very well, which is take something that's complicated and new to people in the WordPress world. And he, in a recent tutorial and in some upcoming tutorials, is talking about uh, at least templating with underscore JS and he'll, he may go into more and, and get into, uh, you know, the depths of backbone too, but I'm just happy to see a tutorial that really breaks it down mm, yeah, for those of great. us that need it to be broken down. And I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. And I think that'll help bring more people into the fray of, of working with what's going to be by far the biggest part of WordPress's future, which is doing, development on in all aspects largely in a javascript oh yeah no i I think if i were going to predict the code base of of wordpress i see all of the um additions being javascript related for sure uh that percentage is definitely going to increase and i think you know there's it, it it's kind of it's interesting to look at um i'm not really that into the core development for JavaScript side of, of, of WordPress, but I think there is a lot of um, a lot of room for innovation. Like I was looking at, I think I was just like playing around. Uh, no, I, th- I think last night I was in bed and I was thinking about um, list tables because I was working on list tables. Mm, and such that, a fun bedtime Yeah, no, I, I, exactly. <laughs> uh, and the, you know, list tables are kind of cool, but like think how much better they would be if they were uh, had a lot of interactivity, like all the pagination was just instant using Ajax and you could search and it would instant just like pop out rows that don't match it and that kind of stuff. Like every part of WordPress, it seems to me anyway, can be improved in this kind of way. You know, you can still keep the, um, the, the, the way that it works underneath, which is going to give you all the kind of progressive enhancement accessibility kind of benefits there. But there seems like a huge amount of enhancement that could be done in so many areas by having a very strong JavaScript strategy and presence to to make a lot of that better. Um, it, it really frustrates me how long it takes to, you know, you click save post 
like saving a post is generally a really slow process when you've got like a bunch of plugins that are doing a bunch of things like to have to wait for that page to reload every time is is like not very fun like there there must be ways that all of this ui can feel so much more responsive and the the mental burden of then using wordpress is so much lower like i think a, a lot of people underestimate just how much of a task it is to go into the admin add a post assign it to a category all of this stuff there's so much waiting clicking between all of these screens and everything and i really see this as an area that can improve a lot yeah not too long ago about a year ago or so uh nason and matt mullenweg so two of the lead developers and the project lead both were talking about how WordPress will likely end up being 80 to 90% JavaScript at some point. Yeah, so I can see that. If you're a WordPress developer and your primary comfort level is PHP, it's probably time to get more comfortable with JavaScript. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and WordPress somewhat, I, I, I think kind of, you know, unofficially or whatever, it's kind of like underscore and backbone at this point. And I'm definitely interested to see whether that'll remain or not. Um, it, JavaScript is JavaScript isn't really. I, I think just thinking in terms of the language JavaScript isn't enough because you can't write any JavaScript for WordPress, right? You, or in terms of WordPress development, you should really be sticking to the frameworks that they're using and, and things like that. Um, so I'm I'm interested to see if Backbone and Underscore is what ends up being there for the long haul, um, and and that is like. All my energy at the moment is on the um, uh, React JS side of things, so I'm somebody that is not super interested in like uh, diving back into backbone stuff. Um, but oh, I think that's that's, kind of that's going to be one of the challenges, right? Because, right, I mean, it definitely is. Yeah. JavaScript technologies change more, it seems like to me, and yeah. I mean we're going to end up with half a dozen. JavaScript frameworks. Yeah, no, so I, I, even though how much I think React is great and everything, I don't think that I would be a proponent of of uh, now people building stuff on that in, in WordPress core, um, unless there was a, you know, super strong strategy very long term that that is what they were going to use. I don't think that, like, that, that's kind of the problem we're in now is there's a bunch of code there that is like jQuery soup from ages ago. And then there's some just, you know, even from before that, just vanilla JavaScript, but is written in the, the style of the day that it was written, obviously. Um, and, and then there's the more modern stuff. But then I, I've definitely heard it said that the way that a lot of the backbone stuff is written is a little slightly anti-pattern with a lot of the way other backbone developers are doing things so i it, it's a really difficult landscape to navigate no doubt yeah it's probably a challenge we'll know more about once we do more refactoring in that area that probably not too many people would recognize currently in the meantime i think right. it, it's just nice to hopefully start having some resources where oh, the yeah. rest of us yeah, noobs can learn. <laughs> incredibly valuable. I, I I think that's a valiant effort for sure. So um, in our final topic, before we get too into this, um, let's talk a, briefly about transparency reports. And this is a shift from development stuff. So you're welcome, everybody that uh, wasn't into all that. Congratulations, you stuck with us for a while. <laughs> <laughs> to get to yeah. a more businessy topic, uh, it's a trend in the general web world. Maybe started in the uh, online marketing world. 
um, but it's made its way to a lot of WordPress businesses to share transparency reports. You've, people have probably seen this with uh, Buffer, open salaries, open revenue uh, reports, things like that. Um, Smart Passive Income, Entrepreneur on Fire, two podcasts that do this where they, they say how much money they're making. Mm. Um, that's one level of transparency. Uh, Chris Lemma did a blog post that I enjoyed where he talked about some of the potential downfalls of that. So I'm curious what you think about that type of transparency. I know I have my own thoughts. Uh, and then I'd also like to talk about internal transparency, which I think inevitably is the more important of the two topics. But let's talk a little bit about transparency in WordPress businesses. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not sure. Transparency to me kind of um, is quite a positive thing, uh, you know, a, a, a positive trait to, to be transparent. I'm not sure that I actually would call transparency reports transparent. Um, I, it, it, it's kind of like they're... I'm, I'm not totally sure. When, when you publish a specific report, then there's motivation behind that. And it, it, it has a certain air to me, and I'm not sure if I'm just being unfair, just of, of that is more of a pro promotional piece of material uh, than, than, than anything like. I think people typically are doing a transparency report when things are going well, and they've got stuff to shout about. Um, j just the idea of like these blog posts that you see of people publishing reports. I I, I don't just I, I don't think that that is a big indicator either way of how much of a transparent organization that is internally and and, and that kind of stuff. So I I guess I'm not super interested in them myself in in terms of like a. Uh, um, telling me how is that company's culture and, and, and that kind of stuff. And that's really what I'm getting at with the transparency thing, I guess. I'm, I'm more interested in terms of um, in, internal transparency rather than, you know, I, I still think it's nice that um, you kind of get to know the numbers every once in a while, like how much did that company make and how much do companies spend on salaries and, and that kind of stuff. I think that that is interesting information, but it is not really a... Um, a, 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 a product in itself that that, that interest that, that much interests me yeah as far as learning it from other people i mean i certainly like it in terms of my own selfish desire to see how other people are doing and right but potentially I, some takeaways but i, 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 agree I, I, with I you. don't know if it does give you that broad spectrum though there's a selection bias there right on on people yeah, who you decided hear, to publish their own transparency reports you don't hear as many i have seen some but you don't hear as many where it's like uh, well, we did not do so well, and you know we have two months of runway before we go out of business. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Like, and in, in I think they're usually like in more of a post mortem sense. If they if they are bad, it's like this is what mm -hmm. we did wrong, kind of thing. Whereas I think if you know compare that to I don't know sitting down and just chatting to somebody like you know how's business going and what problems you're facing and things, you'll get more of a actual ongoing accurate representation maybe of of, of what the state is. Mm -hmm. um, and, and expectations and seeing how other people are tackling things and, and, and how they're, they're doing that. Um, I, I just kind of see a transparency report as more of a single unit that somebody produces that is going to say, you know, I, either we're doing great or we're doing really crap. Uh, and that, that's why I, the Chris Lamer post didn't resonate with me a huge amount because I don't think that there is much hidden... I, I don't think there actually is much transparency there. You're you're just kind of saying what you want to say and and, and what you want to reveal, and um, 
I, I, I don't know how much of the negative side effects that could have had that, that he was discussing, given that the company is just choosing what to put out anyway. Yeah, I do think it's a good marketing tactic, though. Like you said, it's, uh, and I'm sure that's a lot of people's motivation for it because yeah. that's going to get some eyeballs. I mean, you tell somebody, hey, this is how much I made last year, they're going to look at that. Yeah, but I, I think, so maybe we should shunt a little bit to the more internal transparency kind of stuff. Yeah, um, well. And, and the I have the experience with human made, which is the only thing that I can really talk about in, in terms of that. Um, but I would say that I consider us to be very transparent. And if anybody uh, asks me, or I'm happy to say, like, what our numbers are and things like that, but I'm I'm not writing a report on it and publishing it or anything. Um, I, I think there's a um, there's just a difference between publishing that information and being willing to share it. I guess. How do you? Uh, to what degree do you do that? Is it like on a per project basis or company wide? Uh, so company wide, where for, for example, we recently have like every year when we uh, everybody gets together uh, for for a meetup, then we have like a it's internally called like State of the Humans or something, uh, where me, Tom, and Noel kind of have twenty minutes each to talk about like what where we're going and what we did, and in that we'll talk about you know all of the numbers and everything are on there, our expenses, profits, revenues. Uh, all that kind of stuff. It's not broken down super low level because there are some things that I think the only thing that is considered like private internally is uh, salary numbers. Um, but in the certainly in the aggregate, then then that is totally fine. Um, on you know, a, a, again internally and externally, then I'll talk about um, project numbers and how how much we're making and, and things like that. Uh, you know, I would say that. Um, that that's the kind of if if you can have a chat to somebody and they're uh, you know willing to share stuff just for um, for conversation's sake, then that's the kind of transparency that I'm I guess more interested in. Do you have those chats externally as well, like on a one to one basis? Like, yeah, definitely. It, it 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 probably happens less, but I was talking to uh, a, a, I forget a, a guy from XWP uh, night before last at a, a meetup here in New York. And, um, yeah, we, we were, you know, very open about that, that kind of stuff. Um, I just, I don't, I don't see it as, uh, and the only reason I would ever see it as an issue is if there, if you are losing, um, you know, competition somehow by, by doing that, like you're, you're at a, a smaller competitive advantage by sharing that information. And I don't think there is any information that, that, um, I, I kind of see that way. I don't. I don't see our success tied to any information uh, that we have at all. Like that, that isn't what I consider to be valuable. What about pricing transparency? I know human made puts uh, pricing on your website, at least for some base level services. And um, this is another topic that people are super interested in. My most popular post I think I've ever written on post status was how much does a WordPress website cost? Oh yeah. yeah. And I basically laid out these different, you know, common, guesses basically of of what pricing is but it were good guesses and i got a lot of confirmation on it right but people are hungry for that type of information but it is a little bit personal you know this is what you're charging people so yeah, why did y'all choose know. to put your I, pricing I, I just don't find that personal i understand that you know i i don't tell care, care telling anybody like how much i earn or anything like so maybe this is just a thing about me that i that i don't find this stuff like to be um like that 
uh, private or whatever. Um, like on the pricing thing, then um, the 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 only reason that I'm sometimes a little hesitant is I, I is I do find talking about money to be a little distasteful sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like I I, I could. Um, say how much that we charge for something, but I, I I think that there is just a little social thing there that maybe it comes across as like um, a kind of brag or something like that. So that's probably the main thing that holds me back about talking about specific numbers. But if anybody actually wants to know any numbers, then I'm perfectly willing to tell them that. Yeah, and I actually agree with you. I my desire personally is to be open with people, and if I'm in a conversation where it's going to help for me to just throw out a number. Right, because exactly. Then yeah. I'm. I don't. It doesn't bother me. Like I don't keep my own stuff that close to the chest. And actually, I, with my post status customers, I personally feel like it's a little bit of an obligation for me to say like, this is how many members we have, and this is what post status has generated revenue wise, mm-hmm. and this is what it means for what you're going to be, what you're going to get out of it. Like you're going to get me. You're going to get investments in certain types of content or or outsourcing some development you know like there's benefits to them knowing how much i make because it's how much i can invest back into the site right right um, i i would say that um what one of the kind of uh i i think where people worry about sharing it maybe is they think that um i guess i i we human doesn't like compete on price at all um, like we just don't get into that game. If somebody somebody goes with somebody else because they're cheaper, it's like it, I I would never consider lowering our prices for that reason. So mm-hmm. maybe it does depend on what your um, may, maybe you are a company that is doing fantastic with costs. So you you want to be competing on price, right? Because you've got you've got the competitive edge on price. Uh, so maybe that is valuable information then then to know is how much is everybody else charging? So because I know that I should be able to make it lower than that, but still, but. That that isn't the way that um, we're doing things with human made. So I just don't care that anybody knows our price. You know, if if, if they can do it cheaper, then you know, cool. Um, and it's good that y'all don't operate that way because some people do, and it uh, it is a, a dangerous game and a race to the bottom when that when that starts happening. Yeah, um, I, I would say you know, g- general advice there would would be just don't worry about the price. Like your clients will at least our clients anyway, are very rarely choosing based off of price. Like I would say most of the times we probably are the most expensive pick, um, but you can really get over that by demonstrating your value elsewhere that it, it really isn't as big a, a problem, I think, as people fear a lot of the times. Yeah. Another thing that can come up in a uh, situation where, where people are sharing numbers is conflating or confusing what's delivered for a particular price. So if you're talking about pricing of services. Oh yeah, um, like yeah, we like we charge $5,000 a month for hosting and some people are just like go crazy at that. Um, but yeah. like yeah, they you know, uh, there there's a lot of stuff that goes with that, you know, we do a big amount of code review and we do like 24-hour support and we have teams on call like there, there's a, there's a lot of stuff that's going with that that isn't um, you know, so somebody, you know, you, you can kind of look at them and be like, wow, but my server only costs $30 a month. So like what? what right. You're, you're just like charging through the nose. Another uh, an example I've got right in front of me right here is uh, code reviews. I actually, the reason I'm going to use this one is because I actually just uh, basically priced a code review for a lo- local organization here. And I was referring them to a friend of mine and I was basically saying, eh, you can, this guy will probably be able to do a code review for $1,500 for the what they need. Mm-hmm. 
and I'm looking at your code reviews, and it says code reviews. So obviously they're the same thing. Right. Twelve. And, yeah. Twelve thousand dollars. Starts at twelve thousand dollars. <laughs> so yeah. people can look at code review and code review and and see a thousand percent discrepancy and right. not understand. Um, how do you? Is there is, is there even a point trying to differentiate in in um, regards to what you're delivering? Maybe to the people listening to this podcast would need that differentiation more. Um, I think that if you're if you're the target customer, which ours is, which is going to be kind of you know enterprise kind of uh, grade, um, they're they're more interested in um, do you do code reviews for other projects that are of equal um, you know scale and size and uh, relative importance to us. And the price is kind of hanging off the bottom of that. But as long as it's not going over there, you know, allotment, then that's not really a problem. So I would say that our track record and and other client lists definitely help a lot with that. But we can definitely, you know, a thing that we push quite a lot generally is around performance and security um, and kind of experience that we have from higher level architecture and things like that. So it's true that, um, you know, it, it's a, a five thousand or one thousand five hundred dollar code review is probably going to get you eighty percent of what we're going to do. But the the way that most people don't understand about like most pricing is is it's more logarithmic than than um, than, than linear. linear. So if you want if if you need to get that it. it you know, it's like uptime. You can get ninety nine percent is like ten dollars, but ninety nine nine point nine percent is a hundred. And you want like what if you want four nines, then you're now paying through like you're you're paying crazy money. And it's kind of mm-hmm. the same with development. Like the the price kind of um, the the if if you're really getting into that um, small percentile of people that are running into these problems, then the the price you know uh, is is getting exponentially larger for that. And it's why I can price out a website for $15,000 that's got the same number of pages and content types and whatever as one that you might do for $150,000, but the right and the, uh, the, the website the, the scale may, is different. The, the website itself may not be super different. Um, you know, I... I you know, I know, I know that you're a good developer and you know, you know the best practices and all, all that kind of stuff, like... There's all the other stuff, though, that, that we'll probably likely do, like, uh, I don't know, we'll fly people out from other countries to do in-house training, and we'll, we're just kind of, like, used to operating with that kind of client, and we're speaking their language, and they're comfortable with that, and they're willing to pay for that, for things to go smoothly, that we I can it's, cross it's all more the, than, the T's and dot the I's, you know. It's more than flair, too, though. It's also, um, you know, you might be setting up unit tests before you even write the oh code. yeah no yeah I, know, I, like, I wasn't trying to make, i may i may not be doing that right 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 i'm not gonna write unit tests of, for a new blog we were using flare i was more saying that um there are other things that these uh enterprises usually value that isn't just the uh delivered website at the end there's so many more checks and balances to to make sure that that you're doing and uh all of that kind of stuff like the testing is obviously a big part of that um, and uh, all, all of those assurances all have value. And I think um, I can definitely say that when I was coming from, um, you know, teaching myself code and small time freelance of, you know, 
$25 an hour or whatever I was charging. Like I, I could never understand the numbers that the big agencies were charging. I remember I learned that some agents only were charging $1,000 a day and I thought that was crazy. And now we're charging like 1700 So it's not like, I, I would say there's definitely a bias there, I think, to, to miss a lot of those extra value things that, that um, companies are providing. Hmm. And that bringing that back to transparency, it makes context in transparency that if you're going to share this type of information, it is good to share context. Because if you just go to a conference and say, we charge $1,700 a day for our right, uh, exactly, development expertise, exactly. like you might encourage someone that shouldn't be charging $1,700 a day <laughs> to charge $1,700 well, a day. Right. Or you might just be like stomping on someone because they're sad they're charging $200 a day. I, I'm usually not worried about that. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm more worried that um, people won't see the value, and then they just think that we're acting, you know, badly like that. Um, mm -hmm. Like that. That's probably the thing that I've run into the most. Is, um, you know, I, I, I think maybe, maybe there is an aspect of what you're talking about, and they do feel a little bit bad that you're charging much more than them, and therefore. Um, you know, you must be a bad actor in some way, maybe. There's, there's a link there, I don't know. Um, but, you know, I, having said that, that, you know, I'm, I'm still do, you know, the odd thing. We still do the odd thing on the side where, like, we don't... I, I would say we do more free now than we used to because our prices are much higher. Then you end up not charging for so much more than, than what you do. So it, it kind of balances out a little bit in that regard as well. You don't change order every single thing. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I think the one element of transparency that is still one that I'm I'm really not sure on, and you mentioned this, is uh, salaries. Yeah. it's This is one of the most complicated, and it's actually, I think by law, it's not necessarily a fireable offense to share your salary, but most companies are extremely protective about salaries. And oh, wow. Okay, yeah. I hadn't even thought about that. Um, <laughs> to show you where <laughs> I'm coming from on this. So the, I, I see salaries as more confidential information for individuals. Um, mm. I, so it's not, it's not that you're afraid if your team finds out the salaries, then some people will get really oh, upset. Oh, no, no. And, 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 but I'm probably, some, I mean, some companies are like that. Like, right. I know oh, no, fact. I know. Like, um, yeah, I, 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 I could, you see, uh, if two people ha are basically the same, same experience, same pro productivity, whatever, and one's making double the other because they negotiated better, that's not ethically that great on behalf of the company, or at least I don't right, think so. Right, right. But I don't think, like, suppressing the information is, is a good way to go. Um, like, but, but having said that, yeah, I, I'm not going to lie. Like, it, it, if everybody in Human Made got together in a room and everybody started talking about their salaries and how much they're getting, um, I'm sure that would create an uncomfortable kind of situation. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I, I think that, again, it's kind of just the money thing. People do generally get a little bit more uncomfortable around talking about, about money. Um, so so the, the transparency from us are like, you know, human made's number one expense, or pretty much any business number one expense, obviously, is salaries. Uh, like where basically all of our revenue goes, goes into salaries. Um, mm -hmm. And everybody kind of knows that. And 
so so from our side, you know, I, I don't get the feeling anyway. I mean, it's possible that um, like me, Tom and Noel don't get paid the most out of anybody in the company. Um, but I think there is often a tendency when you're not in the position of actually knowing all the figures to often think that um, the, the, the people running the company are making lots of money. And I, I would say um, that that's probably not the case. Gen- generally speaking, you may be surprised. And um, that's part of the reason why, to a degree, I've, I, I know, I, there are people who have so many opinions on this, but to a degree, I like some level of openness about salary because without facts, there's speculation. And speculation, right, right. I think, can be very damaging especially if the culture is suffering anyway. Yeah, um, I, I would say that that's going to be one of the first things to hit if you don't have a good culture. Um, so I, I don't know if it's the problem in itself that, you know, I, I would say that people speculating is maybe indicative of a different problem, um, but it's probably going to be the first one to hit. Um, I, I just don't... So one way that maybe you could do it is you just kind of bracket your positions and the salaries are fixed for those positions. Yeah, and that's um, how that's what Buffer does, and it's a common yeah thing where you have multipliers for location, years experience, things okay, like that. Right, right. One of the downsides of that is that you lose the ability to go out and get somebody because they're exceptional. Yeah, and I, 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 I kind of like that level of freedom a certain amount. Um, mm-hmm. Like I kind of, I kind of know the landscape, and I know that if. Um, if I want to go, or if, if, if we want to hire somebody that is very sought after, it doesn't matter that they're going to be doing, you know, they're, they're technically working on the same type of work as somebody else. It's, it's just going to cost more to get them to do that. Um, yeah. And that's kind of, it's, it's whether you kind of want the market to dictate what you're paying people or whether you want to define it and then see who come to you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not, I don't know. I'm I'm not at the point where I I would go for the um, uh, specific kind of bracket things. The problem is then you've got to work out what bucket to put people in, and I don't really like that general way of of doing it anyway. Um, but th- then again, like salaries, I I can't say that I know exactly why everybody has exactly the salary that they do. Like at Human Made, I just know that that is. You know, most cases we made offers and they accepted and then we like bump them as they progress and get better. Um, and we kind of roughly try and make sure that everybody is on a, a, a continuum of, of their experience and ability. But beyond that, then I don't have any objective criteria that like you're going to earn an extra 500 bucks because you've been here like an extra six months and all of this kind of stuff. Like it, there, there's nothing like that running under the hood. I think it's safe to say that management is complicated and a lot of people in the WordPress world are building businesses from being from just a few years ago being solo or part of other companies to now having 15 20 50 people under their under their responsibility and you know this is just one of those challenges that I think some WordPress businesses Oh are yeah no I mean uh, I, as you probably know like the whole of um, human made is like you know, me and Tom for the first part, then me, Tom and Noel just finding our own way. Like I don't, I could be totally wrong on all of this stuff. I'm just kind of, you know, it kind of feels right to, to do things the, 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 the way we do based off of our experience. But I, I, I have no idea how incorrect that I could be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it's been fun talking about, and we are progressively making these longer. Podcasts. We're going in the wrong direction. 
<laughs> I think I think this is about the same as the the one last week, and we didn't get any uh, any rage quitting that I'm aware of from that. Yeah, that's true. Take um, my advice, listen it to two times speed, and then <laughs> <laughs> then it'll be quick. <laughs> yeah. In fact, right. I, I I hit I hit a new all time record of uh, three point. Uh, eight times on uh, some YouTube videos I was watching. But I think they must have been talking especially slow because I was still able to come, yeah, understand it. I tried to switch to Overcast because of the way you said they do smart, mm, smart speeding speed. up. Yeah. And it won't accept my downcast. Yeah, migrating uh, podcast stuff is really difficult. Like there appears to be no great way to interchangeably switch between... Who knows it why? Should, it should just be an OPML file, but anyway. Yeah. So I'm still on Downcast or Crashcast. <laughs> uh, you can be found at Joe underscore Hoyle. On Twitter. On Twitter. And For- I can be found at Krogsgard. And go to poststatus.com. Sign up. <laughs> oh, slash club. Oh, speaking of self-plugs. Oh, yeah. You, you were going to talk about uh, Nomad Base real quick. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a quick plug. So as some, if anybody uh, listened to the React one, then I kind of dropped it. I was working on this Nomad Base thing with uh, Noel and HumorMade. Uh, and this week we launched the uh, kind of invite um, sign-up process. So basically it's not like the full thing, but... Um, I kind of went the whole hog and kind of it's all built on the real application and the whole like cool map stuff is there and the markets and all that kind of stuff. But all you can actually kind of do is is sign up. So we uh, launched that and we're looking for a thousand people. And I think in about You're 48 the- hours, we got about 700 of those. Uh, so you can go to nomadbase.io and check that out. It's basically the idea is to provide uh, a bit of a, you know, uh, real time look at people that are working remotely and uh, digital nomad is kind of the term, right? You're traveling around and uh, you're working on your laptop and that kind of stuff. And a way to kind of connect these people and also provide tools for them to find the good co-working spaces and coffee shops with Wi-Fi and all that kind of stuff, where people are going to be in the future. And We're still kind of exploring our way, but um, it's been pretty fun to work on so far. So check that out. Is the location targeting specific enough so that it would detect me being in my office versus the kitchen or the living room is <laughs> not that specific. So the public information. I don't travel that much, <laughs> right? Yeah, no, you're probably not the the target in that case. Um, but you could use it to find who is coming to your city and things like that. So you know, even if you're fixed, if you're interested in meeting up with you know people working tech that are traveling around and uh, you want to kind of uh, meet up or whatever, then then you could use it for for, for that purpose. The privacy awesome. side is something that we're pretty focused on. So. Any of your public stuff where you are is all tied to a city level, so it would never say actually where in New York you are. It'd just be like, you know, Joe's in New York. Um, but for your, but then when the personal tools, uh, you're using those, then the location is much more accurate, so it can tell you how far you are away from a coffee shop and things like that. Awesome. Uh, so people get it on that. You only got a couple hundred spots left, and that's nomadbase.io, and we'll see everybody next week. Great. Thank you.